Welcome to the Sandbox Cooperative Podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Dave. So we are just literally a couple of days away from you disappearing for a little while. And hopefully just a little while. I might <laughs> I might just leave and never come back. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm taking a sabbatical uh, after a whole bunch of years, and uh, I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah. so we've talked about it a little bit on previous episodes, but what are you what are you up to? What's going on in the next few months? Well, in a, about a week or so, I'm going to go to Arizona for a few days and uh, hit a retreat center there and decompress a little bit in the desert heat, and then I'm going to... <laughs> Uh, middle of May, be flying out to uh, Scotland, and I'm going cool. to be studying Celtic Christian spirituality. I'm going to be touring Scotland and the UK uh, at first by myself, then with my my family's going to come out there and join me later on in the summer. That same family and I will be floating <laughs> down a river in a an inflatable raft and hitting whitewater and doing good. all kinds of things. And then um, I'll make it out to the East Coast. I'll be learning from John Philip Newell, who wrote the book on Celtic Christian spirituality, going to Wild Goose in North Carolina, yeah, yeah. And a whole bunch of other stuff too. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. So in part because of that, and in part just because we want to continue kind of expanding this this podcast and the, and the voices and perspectives, uh, starting on our next episode, you're going to be hearing from the voice of our friend and new co-host, Carrie Smishek. Carrie it will be joining us, and she does not have the same liquidy, smooth Wisconsin voices that you've come <laughs> to know and expect and love from your co-hosts here, <laughs> but she uh, will bring a Minnesotan accent, and uh, I guess that's okay. Yeah, that's all right. <laughs> so we're really excited to introduce you to her in the next episode, so look for that. But for today, we want to share one last interview uh, with you that we had with our friends from Albuquerque. Um we met them about a year ago. It's hard to believe it was that long, yeah, but, but almost a year ago um, while we were on a road trip. And as you know, the conversations around immigration today are are always changing. There's a lot going on. Um, but this community has just kind of been dealing with it in some ways, kind of very hands-on and, and has great insight. And so we want to continue sharing that with you. Yeah, we cold called them and, and just encountered this incredible, warm and compassionate community is doing amazing work. Joe, David, and, and their other uh, co-workers there are, are doing uh, excellent stuff. And so we wanted to follow up with them, hear what, how they are responding given the yeah. shifting landscape. And uh, so we talked, caught up with them on a computer call about a week or so ago. And so that's why the audio quality is what it is. But uh, we are excited to hear from them again. So with that, welcome to Sandbox Cooperative, Episode 83, Immigration and Seeing the Other. Welcome to the Sandbox. I'm Jane McGuire. Um, I'm a parishioner at St. Michael and All Angels, and I live in Albuquerque, New Mexico. My name is Tom Harmon. I'm a parishioner at St. Michael's as well here in Albuquerque. Awesome. And I'm David McGuire, and I'm also a parishioner, and all three of us have been very involved in the immigration ministry at St. Michael's. Uh, not since its inception necessarily, but uh, for a couple of years now. And I'm Joe Britton, the rector or pastor of uh, St. Michael's Church, and have been here uh, just coming up on four years. Well, so uh, since we last talked, it sounds like there's a lot that's been uh, that's been happening at St. Michael's, maybe specifically, and also in Albuquerque, and kind of in the the broader scope of of immigration issues. So maybe David, uh, what what have you been seeing? What's what's the work that's going on now and the need? 
So to bring us up to speed a little bit on uh, Marion's conversation uh, about sanctuary, the, the person that they had in sanctuary there has worked out a legal way to return. So she has actually gone back home mm, to okay. Honduras and is hoping to re-enter the country with the proper paperwork and to be able to be with her kids and come and go and not worry about it. So I think her awesome. attorney is hopeful that that's going to happen. And that's good. Yeah, good. We still have Kadim, uh, the uh, Iraqi gentleman in sanctuary. And uh, his case is like every other immigration case is just, uh, you just have no idea how long it's going to take. So oh, he's, sure. he's there. And I was just there this morning, actually. Um, so he's just, he's waiting. And as we all are for a resolution on that one. In our parish, um, I think you mentioned, um, I think it was Dave at the end of the podcast, that the family had, uh, that the husband had gotten released from attention, which was very good news. Mm -hmm. And we had gotten them married in, officially in the eyes of the United States and uh, moved them to Philadelphia, where they had a better support system and that sort of thing. So uh, the, the little follow-up to that that's happened since we talked is that uh, they were staying at the Catholic Workers' House in Philadelphia. And on Christmas Eve, people in the Catholic Workers' House got a phone call from Armando. And uh, Armando and uh, Bella and the kids had gone to New York hmm. to visit friends or to try to get a passport or something like that. Mm -hmm. Well, they got a call from Armando, and he is at the Canadian border and uh, wanted them to send him uh, his, their passports. <laughs> <laughs> oh. That was a little bit of a shock, yeah. Um, and there was some disgruntlement around that. But when it comes down to it, their situation is so much better. Um, within a month, they've got paperwork. Uh, he's got the right to work, uh, working papers. It's just a much more hospitable environment. So mm -hmm. they're, as much as we would like to have had things work out for them here, uh, that was a lengthy process that yeah. was not at all sure in the outcome. That's where we stand with that family. We're in touch with them every so often, but they're kind of getting used to the winters in Montreal. And <laughs> <laughs> so, and is is that uh, what I'm what I'm understanding is that that's just a, a more friendly, maybe clear process and and more understandable uh, immigration policy. Or what's the what's the difference there that made uh, made the change? I, I think the difference is that Canada is more hospitable to people coming into the country. Part of that, as I understand, is the Canadian character. Part of it is that you really have to want to go to Canada. Uh, <laughs> it's, so cold. Uh, it's not like crossing into Florida or even southern New Mexico or something. It's a, it's a less hospitable climate. But um, they had come over the border here and had been put directly into detention for an indeterminate amount of time. Yeah. There, they were processed, uh, given a temporary shelter, and now they have a regular place to live that was arranged through the government, oh, yeah. not through a church, a mm. bunch of volunteers, and, and they have working papers, which is through the government. So that's, um, that's a very different approach to immigration. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I just, I hear you saying that and I just can't help but see the difference. I mean, part of, certainly there's, there's questions and people are concerned for lots of different reasons about what the policy, you know, how you should navigate the policy or what the policy should be. And I can understand some of that, but uh, the fact that there is an infrastructure there seems to be very different from what we seem to be experiencing right now. Yes. Yeah. Where we are arguing about infrastructure, not doing much about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, what has happened in the last few weeks, actually, our, our border has been making national news. And uh, the guy who is really point on the border for churches and nonprofits, Ruben Garcia, uh, was written up in the Washington Post a week ago or so. And his work with Annunciation House, helping working with Border Patrol and ICE to receive people coming out of detention mm. and find a place for them. Mm -hmm. And he has hundreds of people that he is trying to find places for. So he has been moving them out to churches and nonprofits in El Paso and Las Cruces and other towns in uh, the southern Texas, southern New Mexico area. But they're just overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. And so they're starting to move people further north. And a number of busloads of roughly 50 people apiece have come to Albuquerque. When the shelters are all full in the southern part of the state and in southern part of Texas, they bust those asylum seekers up to Albuquerque. And that's been happening since about February. And Catholic Charities was the first to receive them because Annunciation House is a Catholic entity. And so because we have received a bus, Tom and I are on the text list of the daily text of the numbers of people being released from El Paso. and. Yesterday, which was Sunday, 525 people were released by ICE, and today 625 were released. All, it looks like, in the southern part of the state. I just can't even imagine that many people needing a place and not, and not, I, I don't know how we would begin to deal with that around here. Yeah, I don't if, know how we absorb it. If someone, yeah. you know, if we, we had randomly, you know, another 700 people that needed a place to stay overnight here here yeah. in town. I don't know how we would even begin to do that. Mm -mm. I just really want to underscore that it's completely overwhelming to a little city like El Paso to have between 500 and 700 refugees dumped on the street by ICE every day. And it's just incredible that Annunciation House can network with us and all of these other churches and groups yeah. and find a place for them there's no one left on the street by dark in El Paso. Everybody has gotten on a bus That's and come to, to shelter. Yeah. Wow. You realize that every day you do not take a bus, 50 people are spending another night under the bridge. Hmm. And could you say more about, I mean, we've heard, you know, on the news reports and whatnot about when you say under the bridge, what that means. Uh, could you just say that again? Because that's uh, that in and of itself, I, I can't even wrap my brain around. Yeah. The detention system was designed for men traveling alone. And the people who are crossing now are women and children and families and 18-month-old um, kids and families of four. And there's no real place to accommodate them in the detention system, in the prisons. And so the separating of children, as, as the current administration discovered last summer, was not a good idea. And so they're keeping these families together 
giving them ankle bracelets, um, making sure that they have sponsors or family members somewhere else in the state, in the United States, and then releasing them to Annunciation House. What I understand is that um, Annunciation House is, uh, is similar to another Catholic entity in Texas, which is doing some of the same thing, uh, providing that triage that the government can't do or won't do or isn't set up to do or something. But in Arizona, they're seeing what happens when you don't have an organization like that that's used to doing it. They have thousands of people just showing up in Phoenix and sleeping in the bus station and trying to figure out how to get from here to there and having zero English and zero money and one set of clothes. And it's really bad there. It might be uh, useful to fill in just a little bit about what the the next step is in this process, at least in uh, New Mexico. So as Jane's been describing, when people are released by ICE in El Paso, Annunciation helps to arrange uh, for them to be placed on buses that bring them here to Albuquerque and other places. And the organizations that agree to take a bus, as the phrase goes, uh, commit themselves to providing shelter and food and uh, new clothing uh, for about three or four days. And in that time, the real push is to connect the immigrants with uh, sponsors that they have around the country, often family members or uh, friends who have agreed to serve as their sponsor. And then um, travel arrangements are made so that uh, within uh, a day or, or two and four days at most, they are on their way to other parts of the country where they will settle uh, while their asylum case makes its way through the system. So uh, Albuquerque has become this uh, funnel uh, through which uh, the immigrants are received and then sent on their way. But in the midst of that, uh, there's a real transformation that takes place, which is is humanly speaking, quite quite extraordinary. So a bus arrives. Uh, in our case, it was last uh, Monday, and we received 55 uh, people off the bus. And uh, as they come off, they are uh, tired and hungry and dehydrated and dirty, uh, having been on the road for uh, as many as six weeks. And also, of course, culturally quite shell-shocked by the whole experience. Yeah. And uh, only that morning, they were in some form of detention center. Uh, that week, it may have been sleeping under the overpass where there was a holding pen that ICE had, had constructed to, to keep people. And they arrive, and we uh, went to work providing them with, with the new clothes and the hot showers and a, a good meal and medical care as necessary. And by that evening, they had really been transfigured. I think the phrase we used is that they had been reclothed with their human dignity mm-hmm. and the kind of sense of quiet and peace and calm and safety that settled over the group as as the night came on was really quite extraordinary. And thanks to a, a huge outpouring of volunteer help from uh, not only our congregation, but also our diocese and other 
congregations uh, around Albuquerque. By the next morning, some of them were already on their way, either by bus or plane, to uh, to meet with up with their sponsors. And by by Thursday, uh, we had arrangements made for all 55. There were 24 individual families in that, 55 people altogether, and about half adults and half children. Hmm. So um, that kind of gives you a, a sketch of what happens when when a, a group or church decides they're able to take a bus. What about other places in Albuquerque? Are there other organizations, churches, uh, community groups that are taking in uh, in buses? So maybe just to back up the story a little bit, which will answer your question a little more fully. So after the Angolan family left that we had had in residence here at the church, mm-hmm. we decided we needed to take a deep breath and decide what uh, our next steps might be. And after talking with members of the parish and doing some uh, discernment and evaluation, we settled on taking the space uh, in which they had lived and creating a facility for temporary uh, emergency housing out of it, okay. which could be used to uh, receive immigrants that are released from detention, especially at the uh, Cibola Detention Center, which is uh, west of Albuquerque, about an hour in Grants. And they particularly house uh, transgender asylum applicants out there. Mm, And uh, when they release them, uh, they often have no place to go and need a place to land just to to get their feet on the ground and figure out what comes next. And then we also had in mind that this Center for Temporary Housing could uh, help provide a place for families who come in from some of the neighboring reservations uh, for emergency emergency medical situations uh, to have a place to stay. Mm-hmm. We imagined it as a place for uh, youth groups who are coming to New Mexico on pilgrimage or mission trips uh, sure. to stay. And we were starting to work on getting that put together when, again, sort of like what happened with the Angolan family, a call came mm-hmm. <laughs> from uh, Catholic Charities, and uh, they said, we really need you to take a bus. That's the most urgent thing. And we had gotten a little bit of experience with what that means by volunteering with some other uh, churches and nonprofit agencies around Albuquerque that had been taking buses. So we were by no means the first, and uh, it's been a real uh, ecumenical and even interfaith effort with Lutheran and Catholic and uh, Presbyterian and Jewish congregations uh, working together. But Catholic Charities was asking if we as a parish could take one on our own, and we con- we decided that uh, at their urging, we would just figure out a way to make it happen. So we made some calls to our diocese, and they agreed to partner with us. And it was a little bit like when we agreed to take in the Angolan family, that just uh, as soon as we did, the, the resources and volunteers poured forth. Sure. And uh, that was a Thursday, and by Sunday we had a training meeting for volunteers with about 100 people in attendance. Wow. And by Monday we took in this busload uh, of 55 people. We were expecting 45, and 55 uh, turned up. And you had, what, three, three staying with you with the Angolan family before? Uh, yes. So yeah. like so you go from three to 55 and. <laughs> yeah. So I, I joked at that, at that rate, uh, the, the next thing we say yes to will be about 500. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> My goodness. But one of the things that, that really amazed us in this whole process is it seemed like over and over again, just when a new need would present itself, the 
necessary resources would uh, appear. Hmm. So when, for example, we found out that we were going to have 55 rather than 45, uh, someone said, well, we're going to need some air mattresses. And just at that moment, someone drove up in a car and got out and said, I've got some air mattresses here in my trunk. Do you need them? (laughs) And we thought, oh, yes, absolutely. And then the the joke that I told is that uh, just about that time, three preachers showed up, and so we had all the hot air we needed to blow up the <laughs> there air. There you go. <laughs> but um, I think, uh, all joking aside, we've really experienced that and interpreted it as a, a sign of providence on the, the work that we've undertaken, mm. that like I talked about in our last interview, uh, it seemed like by opening the door and saying yes, we had said yes to more than just the 55 migrants, but had really said yes to Christ coming amongst us himself, and that that just seems to open the doors to mm. uh, what is necessary in order to do the work that we have taken on. Well, I was personally amazed that people who I hadn't seen engaged in ministry either for the first time or for a long time, and I'm a long-time parishioner at St. Michael's, showed up at the hospitality site to pitch in and do some work, either because they spoke Spanish or they could cook or they could drive or they had car seats or whatever the need was. They were there ready to fulfill it. They were ready to see the church walk the talk. And... And I thought that was pretty impressive. Yeah, mm-hmm. I haven't seen I've I have seen some people who, you know, it's it's just not their issue. It's just not their issue. They have they have full time jobs. They can't show up there. But other people just put their jobs aside and say, "I'm taking a day off. I can I can drive today. What do you need?" Mm-hmm. You know. I just wanted to second what Jane said. Is um for. You know, about two years, and honestly, for the entire time that we had our Angolan family living in the church, it was the same 12 people (laughs) doing everything. We were the little Mm -hmm. tiny immigration ministry in, you know, in a church of of hundreds of families. And as soon as we just sent out an email, and Father Joe made several pulpit announcements about these busloads of refugee seekers needing our help, We've, we had a hundred people at a volunteer, you know, at an organizing meeting the day before the bus came. And then we saw them all again for four or five days, and they, they came to work. It was very exciting to me. And maybe just to place all that in a, uh, a broader context, um, at least as the pastor of the church here over the last several months, I felt it important to try and articulate the ways in which a Christian community, at least from our perspective, is called to live a life that is rather countercultural to a lot of what we hear in the uh, civic secular realm right now. So I have, for example, talked from the pulpit about the importance of telling truth and We've talked about the importance of being reticent and cautious in what we say uh, and to try and speak from a place of knowledge and understanding. And we have talked about the importance of uh, affirming the human dignity of each and every person, regardless of uh, not only the, the typical 
categorizations of race, sex, gender, and so forth, but also regardless of which side of a border they might have, mm-hmm. have been born on. And so I think uh, a lot of, I hope that at least uh, uh, a lot of the outpouring of support from this congregation for this ministry is is in part, uh, as Jane said, a desire to, to walk that talk and to, to demonstrate through our actions that we are trying to live a common life together that is shaped by rather different core values than a lot of uh, what we we hear and encounter uh, on a daily basis elsewhere. And I think that's that's been an interesting experience for us is is to feel a call to to think and model and speak a different way of of being community and one that for us is shaped by by our Christian identity. And so I think about uh, and Chris uh, said it very very clearly on on one of our previous episodes and you and I just heard you you say this as well Joe that Starting from the shared humanity and sh- starting from the dignity of the other uh, as a as a place to start, it, it changes the way that we approach any conversation, uh, any issue, any any problem, any anything that that that's before us. As a congregation, you've 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 planted those seeds. You've been working with that, working with that, nurturing that over time, and and here you are. Another thing that helps us to see the the humanity in the other is just to hear the hear the stories. And, and to share a, a meal or to share that space and that that um, that experience together. I'm wondering what stories have emerged as you've as you've gone through these uh, these last uh, several days and, and weeks. I think we focus a lot on their stories moving forward and where people are going, the new lives that they're planning to build for themselves. Okay. I, I would also say I I like the point that you raise. I think. Working at the site, and we, we call it the site because we keep it secret so that um, we won't have people with hatred coming mm. and, uh, you know, and threatening these people. Mm. So, it, so we just say the site. But uh, actually, you know, there are about six sites. There are many, many groups welcoming these strangers in Albuquerque. St. Michael's is just playing, you know, really one small part. Mm-hmm. But... The experience of being at the site this past week, for all of us at St. Michael's, I just feel like it was a conversion experience yeah. for yeah. anyone, you know, who was playing with the kids. We had a playground, a playroom for the kids, and there were, you know, adult parishioners, some quite elderly, on the floor, mm. you know, with trucks and coloring books, with with Central Americans who couldn't speak a word of English, but you know, you make this heart connection and then serving food, just being with these people to me is a profound experience. And I think we actually made a self-conscious effort not to try to delve into their stories that they left behind, Mm -hmm. um, but to simply receive and greet them as, uh, fellow travelers in this life and to make friends with them based upon our experience in the moment. And as Jane said, uh, letting that moment point ahead to what might lie in their future rather than to to pull on the heartstrings by by trying to ascertain what story had had forced them out of their their homes. We almost regarded that as, as 
not beside the point, but 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 yeah. maybe a place not to be invaded by our curiosity. Sure, I do think though, and and I I mean I I absolutely appreciate that perspective. I think you know looking forward is um, probably a pretty healthy place to to be. You know, after some of the unfortunate situations that that so many of these people are leaving. But I do think that as I'm as I'm hearing you all talk about the reality, you know, I'm I'm pretty pretty sympathetic to the needs of of people who are coming here because they're escaping something that is really terrible. Um, and yet I can, I can understand on some level, um, the perspective that says, well, you know, if we just don't let them in, we don't have to deal with it. We don't have to have our system overrun. We don't have to have more people that we can handle. Right. So like there's a logical logistical piece of that, that I can make sense of. And yet I think that what is helpful for us as we're trying to understand, you know, can we make the system better uh, to be more helpful as people are, are coming here and trying to, to find a better life? I do think it's helpful to say, like, they're not coming here, you know, because it sounded fun. You know, they're coming here because they're really escaping actually something pretty, pretty horrific. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm just wondering if, if um, on a on a larger level, uh, for those who are, who are listening, you could maybe share a little bit about what that story is. You know, why do we have so many people who are here, um, in some ways, more suddenly than than we would have expected, um, and what's going on, and, and why, you know, in particular, are are these people um, specifically in need of help? I guess I think of it. Uh in reference to something I learned way back in uh, high school, would be physics or biology or whatever subject we might have covered this in, and that is that when there is a membrane uh, which has different concentrations uh, on either side of it, of something like salt or the like, water and the like will flow back and forth across that membrane until there's an equilibrium established. And I think as long as there's a, a, a border between the United States and Central America, on one side of which there is poverty and violence and uh, threats and lack of opportunity, and on the other side of the border there is the opposite of all that, that it's inevitable there will be a flow from one side to the other until there's some kind of equilibrium established, which always makes me think that, that while we are dealing with the the immediate issue of the folks who are moving from one side of the border to the other, the longer-term issue has to be uh, stabilizing and um, developing the countries on the southern side of the border so that there's some perceived equality or at least parity on either side of it. Um, otherwise, that the, the flow is going to find a way to continue uh, whether it's over, or under, or around a wall, uh, or any other kind of, of barrier, because that's mm-hmm. that's just the, the the nature of things, isn't it? I think one of the things that I've at least heard, I'm certainly not uh, someone who's studied it a lot, but um, I, I was just reading a news article the other day with some analysis in it that talked about how uh, Colombia used to be a source of... Uh, immigrants to this country because of the level of violence, the drug dealing, uh, the murder rate and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And now they have, with the help of the United States and their own government getting things in order, um, instead of being a place that people are fleeing from, they've become more like a tourist destination. And Medellin doesn't have the reputation that it used to have. 
On the other hand, El Salvador and Honduras have huge murder rates and gangs that just run with impunity, and it threatens the everyday lives of individuals. And so until that is, until that's resolved, I think, as Joe says, we're going to continue to see pressure. Who in their right mind leaves their home and their family and their networks and everything that they know uh, unless things are pretty terrible? Yeah. And as, as there's all these buses there that are coming your way, something in your, in your spirituality, something in your, in each of you was, was called in some way to respond. Uh, and I'm wondering, uh, and it, and it may be different for each of you, maybe may some similarities as well. What, what, from your, your position of faith, what called you to, to act in this, in this uh, instance? Hmm. I think I might make, uh, reference in that context to a text that we have read uh, frequently, both as, in our own work as a immigration committee, uh, but also in the context of um, uh, the the work of, of taking care of the immigrants themselves. And that's a, a passage from Oscar Romero that's quite well known. It's sometimes given the title, uh, We Are Prophets of a Future, Not Our Own. Uh, and uh, it, it addresses a question that has been raised in our own parish, and legitimately so, of, um, you know, do, in, in the long run, does it really good to take care of, say, these 55 immigrants that we hosted last week when there are so many hundreds more? And isn't the place that we should really be putting our efforts more in advocacy and, and changing the world uh, in the way that we were just discussing? But in this text, Oscar Romero talks about how the Christian calling is to, to, to plant seeds of, of something that will, will grow, and that we can never fully solve a problem, we can never uh, resolve uh, any need completely, um, everything that we do is, is partial. But then he goes on to say there's, there's actually something that's liberating in that, in that knowing that we can't do everything, it allows us to do something and to do it very well. And I think that's, that's a part of what we've tried to do, is to say, well, there's, there's a piece of this very big problem that we can take on and do with as much generosity and compassion as, as possible and make, uh, a difference in some lives, even if at the end of the day the, the the larger problem is still there. And I think that's been a real driving consolation of all this: is that we will throw our hearts into um, uh, receiving the stranger who comes our way, even if there are other strangers hmm. whom we will never meet who are part of a much bigger issue. Yes, you know, I'd like to I'd like to add one woman's face to that. You know, when Oscar Romero says, we can do one thing and do it well, <laughs> I thought of the one thing, I did a lot last week, but the one thing that I'll always remember was putting a little family from Guatemala on the Greyhound bus out of Albuquerque. <clears throat> and um, this is a woman who, uh, when she got on the bus, she's seven months pregnant. She's a tiny Mayan woman. When she left her village, in February in Guatemala, she was five months pregnant. And they walked and rode buses at night through Mexico, chased by the immigration police at one point. 
just a harrowing story. Somehow, you know, the, the question is, why do we do this? What is the calling? Um, just to help her and her family. She has a two and a five-year-old son. And she has a husband with her, but she really is, um, it's her family. She's the force. And it, just to help her on her way to her family members down in Georgia, three days on the bus, was just, it just seemed like if I do nothing else the rest of my life, I did that. And it feels very good. So this this group of 50 has, has come in and, and, and you've sent them on their way. Um, what What's next? A group of 70. <laughs> a group of 70. <laughs> yes, yes. We we'll, 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 tell, we'll tell this story on Jane. So um, at the facility where we were housing these folks, she noticed there were some empty rooms, as it turned out. So uh, nice. she decided that instead of 55, the next time we should take 70. So uh, we have plans uh, uh, once uh, uh, we get wow. through uh, Easter that we are going to do it all over again. And and then after that, we may do it all over again yet again. So uh, I think at this point, we want to try and put ourselves on the line as, as often as we can, knowing that uh, we have our own limitations about what we can do and how much energy we have and, and the like, but we, we know that at least on the horizon, there's no great change in sight mm-hmm. and that uh, the buses will keep coming. I think the other thing that I see us doing and others doing is bringing people in and trying to mm-hmm. help, the, help the process scale up because of the volume. And uh, I was just talking to this morning to the pastor at the church where the fellow's in sanctuary, and she's very interested in getting her congregation engaged, not sure quite how to do it, but has other churches in, around her that she works with. And so between them, they could probably be part of the network if they, if they knew how to do it. So I was and we know how to get her helping engaged. her think about it. Yes. So it's bringing other people in. Uh, sort of expanding the the support network and not just trying to be to to do there's no way we can do it all ourselves mm-hmm. yeah one of the thing you were asking about the drivers what what brought us into this and I'll say real honestly part of what brought me into it was uh, the elections back in 2016 and all the run up to that where immigrants were used as uh, scapegoats to whip up anger and fear. And I just thought, well, that's where I'm going to spend time because that's not right. But um, the surprise for me was finding that Mm. (laughs) it wasn't political. What was important to me was learning that those things that we read every Sunday matter. And, And that it's about how you live your life that when you do those things, mm-hmm. somehow your life is better and the world is better. And that's, uh, it's one thing to read it, to hear it Sunday after Sunday, have it be part of the lectionary and have things show up like that, but then to say, oh yeah, I, I really have to test this. I have to do it myself. I have to stretch a little bit. I have to risk a little bit. And, and uh, that certainly changes your changed my perspective toward the things that I've been hearing all my life. We just celebrated Easter this past Sunday. 
And there's this ancient story that is often told in the weeks after Easter about two travelers who are walking away from Jerusalem after the death of Jesus. As they walked along the road, they were profoundly sad, traumatized even, by all that they had seen. While they were on the journey, they met someone, a fellow traveler, and they walked together for several miles. Eventually, it was late, and they invited the stranger to stay with them, and they shared an evening meal, and as they were eating, they realized it was Christ the whole time. They just didn't recognize it at first. Joe was talking about making plans and and regrouping as a faith community after Easter, possibly taking on another bus full of migrants. I just couldn't help but think about that story. Their community in Albuquerque is meeting up with fellow travelers on the journey, walking alongside one another, sharing some meals. And I like to think, somewhere along the way, they both discovered that they have been walking with Christ the whole time, whether they realized it or not. Isn't that what this thing's all about? Journeying alongside one another, seeing the humanity, the dignity, ultimately the spark of the divine in one another. How might recognizing the spark of the divine in the other change how we encounter the immigration conversation? How might it change how we talk about difficult topics? How might it change how we view our friends, our neighbors, strangers, ourselves? Christ, the divine, the spark is there, whether we realize it or not. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Sandbox Cooperative Podcast. And again, a special thanks to the community at St. Michael's in Albuquerque for joining us for this conversation and this series. If you want to stay up to date with all the things happening in the Sandbox, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, or sign up for our mailing list at sandboxcooperative.com. You can also rate and review us on iTunes and join us in the conversation. And as always, be sure to share this podcast with someone who might like it, because there's always more room in the Sandbox. Until next time, we'll see you. Bye. Please watch your step as you exit the sandbox.